Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Tobias Reed, State Treasurer from Oregon, will join us. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap. We'll start with some background, then discuss investing, ESG, and technology. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Tobias's insight. On that note, welcome, Tobias. Thank you. That's a high bar. I hope to meet it. Have, no, no doubt. Uh, having, having spoken at conferences with you in the past, it'll be easy. Um, yeah, look, and in fact, Tobias and I first met at an ESG conference, which was, uh, which was quite well done. Um, let's start briefly with your career and how it evolved to where you are today. Well, thanks. I, I really have had a, a varied career and I'm really proud of the fact that I've had uh, interesting roles in the public and the private sector. Um, after I finished college, I had the uh, opportunity to work in the, in the development office at my alma mater. And, uh, that eventually led to the really rare opportunity to work for the U.S. Treasury Secretary. Uh, so as a young person, I did briefing books for, for Larry Summers, uh, learned a little bit about lots of different things, which convinced me that I wanted to better understand the relationship between business and government, the public and private sector. And it took me to uh, to business school at the University of Washington. And from there, I, I had a chance to uh, try to experiment more with my uh, contention and, and still convincement that companies do better in the long run when they care about the environment in which they operate, the uh, workforce, the, um, the broader economy, and so on. And so I had a, a chance to work at Nike uh, for eight years uh, as a footwear developer. Oregon has a, a part-time legislature. So during that same time, uh, I ran for the legislature, which I found to be a lot like college with committees that are sort of like classes and a a need to discover a, a legislative major. I think it's also like the market in that you can improve your chances of doing something useful and, and succeeding at it by going somewhere where not everyone else is. So I found myself based on business school experience and worked at Treasury, working on things that uh, the treasurers and the Treasury work on. And in 2016, ran for treasurer, was reelected in 2020, and have really enjoyed uh, the experience working on things that are, I think, in a lot of ways, different than a lot of the rest of politics in that we have not only the opportunity, but the really explicit responsibility to think about the long run, the impact of choices that we're making now, the obligation to look out for the funding of the, the pensions that so many public servants have, uh, have earned in Oregon. And it's been, it's been a great experience. That's a great segue into uh, what. how big is the plan? Uh, so our pension fund is uh, just around $100 billion in terms of uh, the assets under management. It represents about 400,000 members. And it's a classic, at this point, hybrid plan. There is a, a tier that is uh, defined benefit. Um, and the more recent uh, entrants have a hybrid plan that has both a defined benefit and a defined contribution portion. But the uh, defined benefit is still open. It's not frozen or closed. It, it is closed. The, the exclusive uh, defined benefit is closed, has been closed uh, since 2003. The new entrants since then are, are part of what we call OPSERP, the public service re uh, retirement plan that is the hybrid. Got it. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. You bet. Um, 
Uh, it's super interesting, by the way, that you worked for Larry. Uh, yeah, I think he's a super thoughtful person and uh, economist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think he uh, he nailed some things during the pandemic. I remember listening to him at the Economic Club of New York, and he was spot on. Agreed. Yeah, he was uh, he was an excellent uh, had to be around and learn lots of different things. So uh, I, I credit a lot of uh, uh, a lot of thinking that, and experiences I had to that experience and, and the experience I had just before that of uh, working as an intern at the U.S. Treasury when uh, Secretary Rubin was in office. Oh, yeah. You're another. I've had the pleasure or fortune of, of spending some time with, with uh, Rob Rubin as well. And yeah, another great mind. Um, uh, both super impressive people. Um, and, and then in terms of um, uh, the, the, the fund, what's the funding status like? Where does that stand? We're around 80% or so. Um, and of course, that's always a, most questions that I get asked, I can usually answer starting with compared to what? Uh, and that's the case here because most people, of course, in, in their real world and certainly in the legislature, even people who are deeply involved in politics don't spend uh, the, the time, nor should they, that, that we do on this question. And it's easy, I think, for pensions to get caught up in politics and for people to, um, to get really fixated on, on the unfunded actuarial liability or to use that as a political football. And we've seen that in Oregon over, over time, but I often you know, try to explain to people what it really means. Uh, it does have an impact in terms of budget because uh, it's dollars that, that aren't available to, uh, to invest in education or, or other things that, um, that we might want. But it is not the sort of thing that um, is, a, is a fiscal crisis in the sense that we're in danger of, of immediate collapse or something. And, and sometimes I uh, find it effective to, to ask whether a person who is concerned about this has a mortgage and then ask them if they could, uh, could pay off their mortgage in cash today. And most people will say no. And I explained that they too have an unfunded actuarial liability, yeah. um, but it is possible for them to, to eat food and wear clothes and, and live in the house, uh, that it's something they have to consider as they make financial decisions. And, and the same is true for us. So we've been really relentlessly focused uh, on taking the, the political um, grandstanding that is possible out of that uh, conversation and try to be a, a source of trusted information for, for legislators and decision makers and, and talk about the impact of, of choices we're making. Um, we're, we have a, a world-class team of, of investment professionals and, and we've been fortunate to continue to make progress um, on knocking that uh, liability down. Of course, we've benefited from, from what the markets have done, but we've also made really smart decisions in our, our execution, our implementation, and the style with which we do those things that I think are contributing as well. And I think uh, we've, we've been fortunate and happy to see increasing confidence uh, in, the, in the way our pension is managed. That's a great transition to the, the next topic, which is, and, and how are you innovating to improve alpha from an investment perspective? Well, Oregon has a really uh, long history in this. Uh, I would say in general, if, if the spectrum goes from, uh, from, from Canada being all, all internal to, to Yale being all external, we're somewhere in between. Uh, one of the things I just was sort of alluding to was, was um, support we gained from the legislature when I became treasurer at insourcing uh, some significant portions uh, of our pension by, by adding capacity. Uh, we, we got approval to, to add quite a number of brains uh, to our team so we can do that work less expensively in Oregon than, than we might hire people from, from where I think you, you're coming from. Uh, and Oregon is also the first state pension fund in the country to have invested in private equity. So I think the alpha um, that we're really seeking is in the selection of those managers, the, the smart deployment of our, our resources. 
And in particular, um, owing to the conference where we met, um, we're excited about the ways that we can both reduce the risk that uh, climate in particular is introducing into the uh, into the pension and uh, where we can find new opportunities uh, for success, new climate solutions. Those are all big parts of our, our strategy going forward. Perfect. That's uh, that was the next topic. Uh, and again, in innovation in, in you know, at, at, to improve alpha from an ESG perspective. So maybe you could delve into that a bit. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the key is how, how much we talk about um, in, popular, in popular culture and political culture right now. I think so much of our uh, discussion in terms of climate is the, the horrible things that we want to avoid. And I'm not suggesting that we not talk about that, but I think it is of some value to, to supplement that conversation with all the ways that the economy can grow, that life can, can be better and much more pleasant if we embrace the, um, the opportunities that, that climate adaptation and solutions uh, can represent. Um, and I think the idea that, that pensions being long-term investors, such contrast to a lot of other investors, um, ha- have a real role to play in that transition. We can afford to, to make longer bets, uh, and I think we should. In fact, uh, it's my strong contention that a person, an investor, is not doing their job as a fiduciary if they are not taking into account both those risks to be avoided and those opportunities to be sought. So that is something that, that, matter, that matters to us uh, across our portfolio in every asset class. And I think anyone who, who doesn't admit how much more work we all have to do in, in quantifying those, those risks and those opportunities and integrating them into every part of the investment process from, uh, from manager selection to diligence um, to risk management, all of these things, um, they're not being honest because we've got more work to do there. Um, that's part of our responsibility and it's, uh, it's part of the, uh, the nice overlap between what it takes to be successful as an investor and what the rest of the world is, is going to need desperately. You know, and and, and I, I spent a few years at APG, uh, obviously large Dutch pension. Um, and while I was there, we transitioned from uh, effectively from engagement to exclusion of fossil fuels, for example. And I, I wrote an article last year that I, 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 I an institutional investor, published that, um, you know, I, where, where I espouse a case for engagement rather than exclusion because for, well, for many reasons. But um, curious to hear what your thoughts are on in, engagement versus exclusion. Well, let me start by contrasting what you said to what a lot of other people say. And I, I have a really hard time when people start, which you didn't, with divestment, because it means so many different things to so many different people. And so I really bristle at that and appreciate the fact that you used exclusion. It's better, although it has some of the same definitional challenges, because as I, I expect that we are certainly going to exclude some things. But the difference for me between divestment on the one hand and 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 this is this is maybe a little more uh, crude or, or provocative than I mean. Um, and divestment on the other is is strategy. I, I don't want to um, make a blanket statement and say we are divesting from anything because that seems to suggest that I've made the decision prior to understanding data. I think we will definitely sell things over time, but that isn't for me. The notion of, of divestment—that's the notion of concluding that it's a bad investment for any of a number of reasons. So I can imagine us saying we're going to exclude things that have a certain risk-reward profile, or 
um, we're going to uh, try to, I mean, I guess the way, one way to think about that is, is uh, uh, a fossil fuel company that has a plan for a transition might be looked at very differently than one that is uh, denying the existence of, of climate change. Yeah, right. So right. Um, that's one big distinction um, because, you know, after all, that might be the, the, the fossil fuel company that, that is in best position to, to discover a viable alternative or a, a successor uh, platform. And, and we certainly want that to succeed and we'd like to participate in the, in the financial gain from that. So I do think uh, engagement has a lot of advantages um, and, and no one listening to this will be surprised um, when, I, when I remind myself as much as others that in order to sell something, you have to have someone who's buying it. And by definition, they're probably less concerned um, than, than the person selling it. So we'd give up our seat. We'd give up our influence by, by selling things. I do think there is a, an ongoing question um, that we're all struggling with, the, the fundamental sort of or what question. If, if engagement doesn't work, you know, then what? Um, we have to keep at it. Uh, we have to continue to exert our influence as investors um, to try to move uh, our individual investments to a place that they're going to succeed over time. And I don't think there's any way to do that without accounting for the, for the very real risks that the climate presents. Well, I, I, I mean, look, uh, this might be a sort of extreme answer to your question. If engagement doesn't work, then what? I, I might say, if engagement doesn't work and you think they're destroying shareholder value and or, um, you know, um, well, destroying shareholder value, I might argue you should short the stock. That's a possibility, as are asserting our, our rights as shareholders in, in, in the legal context, too. Um, there's interesting things happening uh, in, in court cases uh, around the world. But, but you're right. That's another good form. And, and that, that might well play a role. You're right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, shifting gears from from that, uh, I, I don't know if this will be as relevant, but um, maybe what about from a technology perspective? Anything um, that you're, any innovation to improve alpha from a technology perspective? Well, we, you know, we have as a as a big portfolio, we have to continue um, looking for all the ways that we can automate our our understanding of of our exposures and the various risks, uh, and we're always uh, looking for those opportunities. And I do think, um, you know, that that's in the sort of internal implementation side of things. But I think there's also good um, use in, uh, in in or utility in, in thinking about where that uh, technology will apply to um, to physical realities of climate as well. Um, we're really interested in those those opportunities that um, can address real issues. Uh, I think about that in terms of wildfires a lot in Oregon. There's a there's a good example of a um, uh, a collaborative approach amongst the, the universities in the Northwest around uh, automating um, surveillance technology to, to um, spot wildfires at an earlier stage so they can be suppressed more quickly and, and make those forests uh, more resilient and, and our populations less vulnerable. So um, they can apply in a lot of different contexts, I think. Yeah, that's that sounds 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 very sensible. I mean, um, especially in light of what we're seeing, where uh, as as I'm sure you're intimately aware, insurers are pulling out of states like Florida and California yeah. because the risk return is just it's uneconomical at this point. Um, right. So if you could, to your point, suppress that damage earlier or detect earlier and uh, diminish or limit, yeah, that's a that sounds great. What, what you you mentioned, you were really a pioneer, if not innovator, of um, private equity investing uh, from a 
public plan perspective, which is great. Um, where do you see the either the best or an interesting opportunity from an investment perspective now? I think the you know we, we have a couple sayings that come to mind for for, for me right now. Um, this is not unique, probably to Oregon, but we remind ourselves all the time that every basis point counts when we're talking about a a pension fund that is as big as ours. It's easy to get lost in those numbers, um, but it represents real existence uh, for individual retirees and, and every every bit that we can make a difference there uh, matters to them and, and matters to the state in that, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's an opportunity for uh, for the state to make other investments as well. A dollar from investment returns is a dollar that doesn't have to come from elsewhere in the budget. So it, it matters. Um, we've had, I think, a lot of um, success and interesting um, uh, progress recently by um, adding a, a new, for us, approach to, to co-investments um, that we've talked about fairly publicly in, in the private equity space um, that is a, a really direct uh, attempt to, to save fees and allow us to, um, to better fine-tune our pacing. Uh, we're not so arrogant as to think that we're any better at picking individual deals than we are at picking managers. Um, so we use that you know, to, to take a proportional share uh, of, of all co-investments and, and fine-tune that, that pacing. That's been uh, successful for us. Uh, and I think the other thing that um, matters uh, here is the, is the famous Warren Buffett quote uh, about what happens when, when the tide goes out and we see who, who's been swimming naked. Um, there's a little bit of that as we, I think, reset into a different environment around interest rates that, that causes us to think it's time for us to go back to basics and, and really double down on understanding the managers with whom we have relationships and, and their, um, their fundamental attitude about, about how they invest and how that all fits together uh, in this large and sophisticated portfolio. Um, overarching all of that, uh, I've made reference to it several times, but uh, I think um, it bears repeating more specifically. Uh, I made a pledge last uh, fall to spend this calendar year of 2023 in building, or at least assessing and, and building a plan uh, to get the pension fund to, to net zero position on carbon emissions by 2050. Um, that, is, that is a big challenge. Um, and especially as we try to do it in the context of our fiduciary responsibility, um, that I think is, is a huge opportunity. And it's an opportunity, as I've said repeatedly now, uh, both to avoid risk and to, um, to, to realize additional return. What are the biggest levers that you can pull to achieve that, if that makes sense? Uh, it does. And I, I think it, it's, it's, all, it's, it's the stuff we've been talking about. It's being intentional about uh, understanding the attitudes of the people with who, whom we entrust to, to manage retirees' money. Um, it's being intentional about um, seeking out those those opportunities that that are are built for a, a changing climate. Um, it's looking at the places where we can um, uh, plan for the uh, how to say the, the delay in achieving um, climate stability. Um, what, what's happening around the world, and and it was interesting to watch uh, the East Coast have the realization about the impact of, of smoke that we did several years ago, um, you can't avoid it. Um, that's going to cause people to have different reactions and make different choices. And uh, our portfolio needs to be prepared for that, just as we are for, for all kinds of other scenarios. 
over time, I think Oregon has, has taken the attitude that we are comfortable not being the, the highest of the high in bull markets uh, in exchange for being not the lowest of low in, in bear markets. And that, that has proven to be successful over time. And look at, at our ranking uh, relative to our, to our peers. Um, that's really good over time. It's, I, I frequently will get people uh, you know, comparing us to the S&P 500. Well, you know, the S&P 500 did X. Why aren't you doing that? And it's pretty easy to say, because we're not trying to be the S&P 500. Our obligation is over the long run. Uh, and so the levers are, I think, continuing to um, consider all those choices. How, how's the Fundamentally, how is the portfolio constructed? Where can we assert our rights um, with with our shares, voting our shares, um, as we talked about before, shorting or or engaging in, in legal actions, all of these things I think are part of uh, our, our toolbox and and our obligation on behalf of our beneficiaries. Yeah, look, I I couldn't agree more with you. I think conceptually, you and I have the same philosophy in terms of why constrain your toolbox? Why not, you know, yes. keep the greatest optionality so that you can be thoughtful and create the greatest value in, in, in given any set of circumstances? That's right. And I think the fundamental difference where, again, where you and I are aligned and where people often forget um, is that we, you know, someone says to me, your job is to maximize returns. I have a very hard time not um, coming back with the, with the sort of, um, snarky quip uh, to whom over what time period? Uh, because depending on the answers to those questions, you could come to very different conclusions. We got to think about the, um, you know, the the seventy something year old uh, teacher who retired last year at the same in the same way or at to the same degree that we think about the twenty something year old firefighter who just started her career and has a, has a really long investment horizon. Um, that's an obligation that we have in, 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 in both cases. So uh, we've got to, we've got to balance all that, all that long horizon, which is different than someone who's just investing for, for next quarter. When I was at uh, APG, the Dutch pension, this is something that we discussed quite often internally, uh, the investment staff um, and in, in both the Dutch and, and U S investment staff in terms of if you're making decisions based on ESG and not economics, would the be- you have a fiduciary duty to the beneficiaries, right? And you have to put their interests above your own, obviously, and ahead of your own. And you know, would they really, you know, would they sacrifice return for ESG, and/or how much return would they really sacrifice for ESG? How, how do you think about that? Because that's mm-hmm. something where we often felt there was individually, again, just personal opinion, felt there was too much return being sacrificed for ESG. Well, I think this is this is the heart of it. Um, I, ha- I had a, a conversation with someone um, not too long ago where this person said, I, I think uh, I think the pension fund just needs to be invested in accordance with Oregon values. And it's an interesting thought for a moment. And, and I, I did think about it for a minute. And then I just asked as politely as I could, could you tell me what Oregon values are, please? Because um, I don't think any any small group of people, unless they're, you know, selected specifically for this purpose, could agree on that, no matter how small, because everybody's got their own values. And then add to the fact that we have 400,000 retirees that we're investing on. And any definition of that, I think, runs into problems because there isn't really any universal definition of it. But what I also tell people is that the good news is by emphasizing financial return, um, 
I think in the long run, it, it aligns pretty well with a lot of the other things that we might share as values when we don't have our fiduciary hats on. You know, a growing economy, which, which contributes to that financial return, needs a healthy uh, physical environment. It needs a, a, a respect for, and, and the, the rule of law has to, has to control. Um, it's going to need infrastructure to move people and things around. So a lot of this stuff um, is, is consistent. There's, there's great legal and academic discussion to be had around the, the impact of, of community on, on uh, quality of life and sort of total returns. But in the short run, uh, we can get a, long, a lot of the way there um, by focusing on, on long-run economic returns. And, and I think that's, we've we got more than enough work to do on that front uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, to your point, I've, I've said this for, we, I've been teaching ESG as part of our course that I teach at Columbia for the last decade at the business school. I mean, to me, ESG is so subjective to your point. I mean, one man's exclusion list is, or one woman's exclusion list is another, you know, could be the entire opposite for another person or man yeah. or woman. I, I, I am sometimes a kind of aghast when, when people say to me, oh, this is our, the responsible investing portion of our portfolio. And I have to resist saying, what does that mean about the rest of your portfolio? Yeah, right, right, um, right, right, right. It's irresponsible. Yeah, exactly. So respectfully, Michael, I, I think we will succeed when your class is, is irrelevant and moot, when it is assumed, when you have to have the reverse of that situation, when, when you have to say, well, this is our irresponsible portion or our allocation because everything else is. What are we doing if we're not saying every risk, every material factor is part of our process? Um, whether you like it or not, it's a, it's a factor, and we're not doing our job as a fiduciary if we're not considering it. I would not be so presumptuous as to say, consider it and come to this conclusion. But I think I can say on solid ground, if you are not considering something that is material, then you're not doing your job. And that is frustrating to me to watch uh, people say things like that out in the world. Yeah, fortunately, ESG is only a part of our class, but I will tell you... Um, I, I think, yeah, again, I mean, you and I are, are fairly aligned in terms yeah. of, um, y you know, look, ceteris paribus, if you can make the world a better place and achieve the same economic return, that's, that, that's, that's yeah. optimal. Yeah. Uh, but if it has an economic cost that's material, then, you know, that has to be considered and it's not necessarily, it, it, I, I, I think you and I both come from a profit first, not an impact first investment philosophy. In the context of a pension fund, we have to. That's right. Um, if how, how you invest your money, how I invest mine might be a totally different uh, thing. But, but if, you know, I, I tell people all the time, legislators in particular, if I can tell you one thing about the pension fund, it's such a simple thing. Remember, this is not public money. It's amazing how many people do not have that understanding. And they'll say things like public money should do this or shouldn't do that. Say, That's not what the pension fund is. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you belongs to the people who have earned it and and we have to invest on their behalf. Right. Completely agree. Very, very, certainly an important nuance point. I, I will say one thing though, in, in terms of the APG I've been discussing, in mm -hmm. fairness, see, they're fairly unique in that uh, they had four components to their fiduciary duty, return, risk, cost. Okay. Fairly basic, but responsible investing or ESG actually was a fourth dimension. So that gave them a lot more latitude and the ability to make these trade-offs, whereas others, to your point, like yourself, ESG, I assume, is not embedded in your fiduciary duty. It's not um, in, in our fiduciary duty. It, it is in our investment beliefs. 
But the definition, as you well know, uh, of fiduciary duty is different in the United States than it is in a lot of Europe. And um, that also is an interesting debate to have. Um, but but presently, we're, we're operating under a under fairly strict definition. And as I said, I, I think I think get a lot of the way there under that definition. And, you know, hopefully uh, some people much younger than than the two of us will will have the capacity to have that update that debate and 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 make those uh, those adjustments in, in the decades to come. Right. Um, have you changed your portfolio because of, uh, of of the of inflation or or either your inflation outlook or not in a, in a material way? Because this this gets back to I mean this is with apologies to Ray Dalio the attempt to build an all weather portfolio here. Um, we we've had assets and and styles and strategies that for a very long time were not paying off, but were there in the event that the inflation did spike and they performed they performed well. Um, so it has not changed in a, in a material way. Um, and, and we, we continue to assess as we always do, but, but not so far. Yeah. Look, I think that's very sensible. Again, I mean, I've, I've watched, I've watched some other allocators, you know, within the last year, you know, build inflation components to their portfolio and, and basically, you know, what, if anything, right over the last year, what we've seen is inflation having largely peaked and, uh, at the least, decelerating and we've mm-hmm. had disinflation, not deflation, but disinflation. And, yep. you know, so I, I think that's probably more sensible, frankly, if especially it, if, if it, it, sorry, if it causes them to, to pay attention to that and to develop a sensible, sensible strategy, that might be a good thing. But um, so far we haven't seen reason to, to deviate from our plan. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I don't disagree. Um, look, what's the material mistake you've made uh, when investing in what, but more importantly, what was the lesson learned? Well, of course, um, you know, we're infallible at the Oregon Treasury. Um, <laughs> we don't make any mistakes. Um, well, there, there are obviously lots of, lots of mistakes over time. But, but I think what, the, what it really points to as a, uh, as a lesson is um, how important it is to have lots of different views in our, in our process. Um, I think mistakes are inevitable and with the benefit of you know, it's important to distinguish between bad results and, and bad process. And, and we really want to focus on the, the elements that are, uh, that are not chance that are, that are around process and um, give great credit to, to uh, one of um, the institutional sort of um, Hallmarks of Oregon has has been this process and and the addition many years ago of an investment council. Uh, unlike, there are still a few state treasurers who are sole fiduciaries, and um, that while I have respect for those individual people, there's some danger in that, and and we don't have that in Oregon. We have a a council which I refer to as kind of our legislative body. Uh, I'm a voting member by virtue of being treasurer, and there are four other people who are appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate. That that's where we go to set allocation strategy, uh, where we talk about risk, where we talk about um, those big strategic questions um, that I think provide the level of, of external oversight and and diversity of opinion that really protects us uh, from making predictable, avoidable mistakes. Um, that's something that that all of us, I think, in Oregon really value and and are committed to to continuing. Yeah, well, that, it, it's some someone. Some, a book I quote often is uh, James Sirwecki, "Wisdom of the Crowds." If you mm-hmm. have a number of, if you have many, inf- as you know, if you have many informed views, uh, the the decision is often better than than less, yeah, less and uninformed views. So, 
that's been a long time since I read that book, but I remember liking it. Yeah. 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 Same here. Same here. Um, uh, okay. And, um, what, speaking of books, what, what, is there a favorite book you have or one you've read recently that you liked? Yeah. Um, could be well, investing guess, or, or not. Sorry. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say, I think I'd, I'd put two categories and, and it's one of my favorite questions actually to ask people what, what the best thing they've read or watched recently. There's just too much in the world for any one person to take it all in. And I find a lot of value in uh, encountering things I wouldn't otherwise know about. So I, there's recognizing that there is some pretty serious recency bias here. Uh, and the, the, um, fact that I work for makes a, a big difference, but I really like uh, Ruben's recent book, The Yellow Pad, uh, speaks to a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about here around uncertainty, around decision-making. Uh, and it was, it's, it's well-written, it's enjoyable. It's, you know, a lot of um, memories and experiences that he's relating in a, in a memoir sort of format. And it was uh, kind of striking for me as I read through it to realize how much of, of his thinking, even in the short time I was around while he was secretary, have uh, have stuck with me in the way I uh, seem to approach things. So I, I really like that one. Uh, and I never miss a chance, particularly with uh, with a, a wider, more widely dispersed audience and, and someone on the East Coast to talk about my favorite book ever, uh, which is not related to investing at all, um, A River Runs Through It. Uh, it's a very short book, 120 pages, something like that. Uh, I was born in, in Missoula, Montana, so I certainly have some bias in that respect. But uh, what a beautifully written uh, short story that, that speaks to much more timeless and, and universal themes about uh, family and relationships and uh, uh, what matters. So those would be my two for today. Excellent. Um, good stuff. Um, what advice do you have for allocators and investors, if any? Uh, I think the, the biggest one we kind of covered already in your question about inflation, which is uh, having discipline and, and thinking about the long run, um, not getting distracted by noise. It's maybe just a, a restatement of the advice we all give ourselves in the midst of turmoil, which is, you know, don't look at the horizon. Don't, don't look at the, uh, what your daily balances are. Um, and I think that that speaks to uh, another aspect of the, um, answer, which is how important it is to know know your strengths and to be cognizant about whether they are still an advantage in the marketplace. Is the market changing? Is, your, is what you thought a strength still a strength? Um, being self-reflective on all those things, um, but not reactive, I think, can, can be uh, a real source of advantage. As, as, as is the case with much of what you've said, uh, <laughs> uh, very sensible. Um, what look, nice. and to wrap it up, what, what didn't we discuss that I should have asked you or where you're discussing with other investors or is any, anything else that's topical that you think you'd worth sharing or. Um, I mean, I think, I think I, I definitely hit on the point that I try to make with everybody that these dollars are not ours. They're not public money. Um, I think it's worth, uh, something that I always remind myself is, as I started to talk about, but I don't think I finished, um, easy to get distracted by these large numbers. Um, I don't, I don't know people who, who talk in their own lives about billions at a time, but we do that all the time in the pension, but that is not the experience that individuals have. Um, the median benefit in the Oregon retirement system is about $30,000 a year. So that really matters for me. Um, to, to ground myself, to think that as we're making these decisions, 
that has the potential of impacting whether uh, someone can can buy groceries or or pay their utility bill. Um, the contrast between those two things is really important to keep in mind. And then I think um, the the net zero pledge that we're working on now, uh, we're not the only one who um, who's struggling with this, um, but I think we are taking it as seriously as anyone else. And I'm really looking forward to how we can build that plan, what the conversation is going to be like with our investment council uh, and with other institutional investors, because um, we have a role to play uh, for sure. That's, that's why we're doing this, uh, but we're not going to be able to do it alone. Uh, I have a lot more optimism based on the passage of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and, and the various other bills, uh, but it's going to take investors, uh, institutional, individual uh, pensions and others um, to try to supplement that public capital uh, through the uh, Inflation, Redu- Inflation Reduction Act, um, and to try to deliver the outcomes that we that we need uh, from a from a climate change perspective while we're delivering the financial returns that that we owe to our beneficiaries. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I was uh, speaking with. I had dinner with. I had the privilege of having dinner with Mark Carney at um, mm. about a year ago at, at Milken, and uh, yeah, I mean the amount of, of in, in infrastructure investment globally, um, the the numbers are extraordinary in terms of for the energy transition and what you're alluding to, and and right, that will be a confluence of public and private, and uh, and right. the opportunities will be massive from an investment perspective. Right. Yeah. Lots to look forward to. Uh, lots of opportunity. And uh, maybe we'll get to have a conversation like this a few years from now and, and uh, be celebrating all the great things that are uh, on the way. Hopefully. Well, look, yeah. Tobias, we'd like to thank you for uh, the thank you. super interesting discussion um, and, and sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Um, we, we hope listeners have a better appreciation how one of our more thoughtful pension leaders is thinking about innovation and investing, ESG and technology. And, and how others may benefit from it. Um, this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again uh, for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into this. Uh, thanks. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG and Technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, Asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning. 